that brings us now to the last division here in this final major division of Isaiah and the glory of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant. We move on in this section to the glory of the kingdom. Now, he says here, outward religious forms and inward wicked ways delayed the grace and glory of God. And I think that today probably is hurting the cause of Christ as much as anything. Men with church memberships, men that are religious, and yet they curse like sailors, dishonest in business, immoral in their social life, and untrue to their wives and their families, and they talk about that they are good enough to meet God's standard. That holds up the grace and the glory of God. Now, this chapter brings us to the final division of the prophecy of Isaiah. And here we have the glory of God. Now, the explanation is given here as to why the glory was withheld. The people were very supercilious and cynical about their relationship to God. They were observing forms, and they dared to question the actions of God toward them. They sat in judgment upon God, and a lot of people do that today. In spite of their outward observance of religion, they were indulging in their own wicked way. And this same spirit is manifested after the Babylonian captivity, which reveals that it did not cure them. Malachi said, "'Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts?' You see, they were criticizing God. He's not blessing us. And yet, look how religious we are. While we go to the temple, we make the sacrifices. And that was brazen affrontery and audacity to question God. And this is the spirit of the natural man with his outward show of religion. His heart is far from God, and his way is wicked. The veneer of godliness is nauseating to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the church in Laodicea, "...so then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I'll spew thee out of my mouth." And that's the attitude of the Lord Jesus toward a lot of churchianity today. Now, there is here in the first three verses the exposure of the wicked ways of Israel. Will you notice this? Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, the prophet here is commanded to cry aloud a message that's always unpopular. That is to point out the transgression and the sins of a people who think they are very religious and that will bring down their bitter displeasure and their caustic invective upon one's head. Only a very brave man will do it. I would say the basic weakness today of liberalism is its aim to please the natural man without telling him the truth about his fatal disease. Why, the medical profession would be guilty of criminal negligence if they followed the same procedure with the physical man that religion plays with the spiritual part of man. My doctor, when I had cancer, I tried my best to get him to say it was something else. And he said to me, I'm going to tell you, Dr. McGee, exactly like it is. If I don't, you won't have confidence in me. May I say to you, God is telling you just like it is. And... He wants his servants today to tell men they're suffering of a fatal disease, a sin, and it's going to plunge them in a lost eternity, an eternal death, which is separation from Almighty God. Now listen to him, verse 2, "...yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, 
and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Now, there's an element here, I think, of biting satire in God's statement. These people were attending the temple worship regularly. They were going through the ordinances punctiliously. They were meticulous in following the forms of worship. They actually enjoyed going to church, yet their lives bear no resemblance to those of Christians. That was true in that day. It's true today when I use the term Christian. He says in verse 3 now, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Now you see, these people now complaining petulantly. They ask the reason for fasting and self-infliction if God did not take notice and put them on the little book that he carries, that is, they thought that he carried. And he didn't pat them on the back for the little ritual they went through, and yet their heart was far from God. They made fasting an important part of their religion, and God never gave them fast days. He gave them feast days. And they were to afflict their souls in connection with the great day of atonement. And in times of sin, they were to fast. Fasting was the outward expression of the soul, and they had made it a form which ministered to their ego and their pride. They boasted of the fact that they fasted. Fasting was a private matter between the soul and God and not a public show. And our Lord condemned them for abusing the fast. You remember, he made the statement in Matthew 6, 16, "...moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward." And you know what their reward was? They wanted to be seen a man. They were seen a man. They got their reward. They didn't expect anything from God, for they didn't do it because of a relationship with them. But thou, now the Lord Jesus says to those that are his own, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, wash thy face, that thou appear not unto man to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Friends, religion... Real religion, the real article, is a personal relationship with Christ, and it is as secret and private as anything can possibly be. Do you go around and tell about your intimate relationships with your wife or with your husband? Of course you don't. Well, my friend... If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's so precious. And it's a secret between you and him. You witness for him, but you don't reveal those things. And this idea of boasting about our religion, that we belong to a certain group, that we have been through a certain ceremony, and that we follow a certain ritual, shame on you, friend. Shame on you. That, my friend, is nothing in the sight of God. He says it's not, unless it reveals what's on the inside of the heart. Oh, today, how we need reality and not ritual. Oh, it's so desperately needed. Now, in this next section here, you have the explanation from God rejecting their religious acts. Why was God so difficult about this? Well, verses 4 through 7 now, and let me read these. He says, "...behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high." Now, God explains why he cannot accept their fasting. You know, they thought that it gave them special acceptance with him. And actually, God had not commanded fasting at all. As we saw last time, 
He gave them seven feast days. He gave them no fast days. And actually, their acts of worship, they were just acts of worship, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And that is the condition largely of the church today. And I don't say it's the condition of your church. There are many wonderful churches. But by and large, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Now listen to the Lord here in verse 5. Is it such a fast that I've chosen? God says, I didn't pick out a fast day for you. A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast? and an acceptable day to the Lord. God says, I never asked for you to do that. That outward form, it doesn't reveal a condition of your heart at all. Now, in verse 6, "...is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke?" And friends, this is tremendous. This gets right down... To the nitty-gritty, this gets right down where the rubber meets the road today. God says, now, if you really want to fast, he says, let me tell you what you do. Instead of fasting and going around with a pious look, he says, let's stop your sinning. Stop your gossiping. Stop the things that you're doing that reveal the wickedness and the evil that's in your heart. And then start being honest in your dealings. Be truthful in what you have to say. Demonstrate in your conduct. And God says, I don't care about seeing sackcloth and ashes. I want to see you lie. And I'd like to see, instead of a bunch of ashes on it, I'd like to see it all cleaned up and shining. May I say to you, the Lord gets right down to business, as you can see. And I think today he would stop many a church service and say, listen, let's cut this out. Why are you going through this form? You're not getting close to me. You're not pleasing me. And you're going right out from this place. You'll gossip. You've got bitterness in your heart. And you are not moral in your conduct. And you're living a loose life. And in all of that, you think you please me. God says, I want you to know you don't. And this is the reason I'm rejecting you. Now, will you notice, verse 7, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? And that thou bring the poor that are cast out of thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. You see, they were turning their backs on the poor and needy. They even refused to show kindness and love to their own flesh and blood. Their religion was as cold as the north side of a tombstone in January. I tell you, they didn't have a heart. God. And when you've got a heart for God, you'll have a heart for other folk. You'll want to be helpful to them and a blessing to them, friends. And you can't be hateful and be fundamental at the same time. All of this criticism today, all of the unloveliness today, it hurts the cause of Christ. And I think this has a tremendous message for us. God told his people in a day, God says, away with it. I don't want it. It's no good. You're just going through a form. You're playing church. You may be having a little fun at it, although I don't think you're having fun. I think it's become a burden to you. But you go through with it because you're trying to keep up a front before the world. God says, let's come clean. Let's demonstrate in our lives that we've got reality. This is tremendous. Do you see now why this is not popular? You will never find today liberalism dealing with this part of the Bible. They like to go to the Sermon on the Mount, you see, and pick out a few little verses there, you know. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, that's great, but let's get things straightened out, too, by the way. Religion, it's a great cover-up today. I have a letter from a party, and I was going to read it, but I'm sure now I'm not going to read it. But it tells of the fact that they were in a home where there was a religious leader of that community, the man looked up to, and he encouraged the young people to drink. He told a boy, you're not a man until you can know how to handle your liquor. What kind of a man is that? 
And you can go through ritual all you want to, friends. God despises it. He says he does right here. Now we come to the last section. Here is an expression of concern on the part of God now for their welfare. You see, God tells them why. Now he has a concern for them. He wants them to turn to him in the right way. Verse 8, "...then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward." You see, God could not manifest his blessing and glory to a people who practiced their religion so badly. Now, one of the reasons that today the world is not convinced that God is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, that's going to be fulfilled someday. But the world's passing by the church today. Why? They don't believe God is there, friends. And you know, I'm not sure what they might be right. God says here, I can't manifest myself because of your life. How many of us are blocking the way today? It's said that when Alexander the Great came back from one of his campaigns, he looked up his old teacher, Aristotle, that great Greek philosopher, and he said to him, in fact, he rushed into his home, and old Aristotle was taking a bath. And he came up to the doorway of Alexander the Great and told him what he'd done. He said, now what can I do for you? And the old philosopher just kept right on. He wasn't impressed by this young upstart at all, listened to him, but just kept going right ahead to finish his bath. So Alexander repeated it. He says, what can I do for you? And Aristotle says, well, you can get out of my light. My friend, a lot of us today, we say unto God today, what can I do for you? God, I think it said, get out of my light. Let's let it shine through today. That's the important thing. Now, will you notice here, verse 9, Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. Now, God wanted to hear their prayers, and he wanted to bless. He wanted to open the windows of heaven and pour them out a blessing, but their hearts were not open to receive it. Now, we today, we say, well, our prayers are not being answered. Why? Is it because God does not want to answer them? No, our heart's not open. Our heart's not open to receive the blessing that God really wants to give to us, you see. Why, he says, the minute you cry to me, God says, I'm going to say, here I am. I'm right here. I can remember as a boy. I had typhoid fever and double pneumonia at the same time in a little country town and country doctor. And one night, the doctor thought I'd die, and my mother sat there at the bed. And I was delirious most of the time, but I can still remember coming up out of that. I would call her name. I would say, Mama, and she'd say, Here I am. Huh. And what a comfort for a little boy it is. And today, my friend, what a comfort it is to know that when we come to God in prayer, He's there, and He says, Here I am. It's up to you from now on. If you come in the name of my son today and make a request, it's in my will, your heart is right, why, I'm going to move right along with you. And the problem, you see, is with us. Now, verse 10, If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. God asked them to practice one specific thing, that he might bless them. You see, he just picked out one thing. He could have picked out a dozen, but only one here. Now, God promised to bless them if they'd show reality in their religion. Verse 11, "...the Lord shall guide thee continually, satisfy thy soul in drought, make fat thy bones. Thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters fail not." God wanted to bless them, you see. Now, that is the message that you have here. Let me drop down now to verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath. Now, God gave that to the nation Israel. God had said to the nation Israel that the Sabbath is a covenant between me and thee. It's a revelation of a peculiar 
contract I have with you. And if you want to read something that is enlightening, read Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. I'm not taking time to turn to it. Now, God turns to that, this one specific thing. He said, now, if you will do this specific thing that I commanded you as a people. Now, today, we have it a little different. We're told in Hebrews 4, verse 1, "...let us therefore fear..." Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. And the word rest is Sabbath. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, verse 10. For he that is entered into his rest, that is, the Sabbath, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, have you and I entered into his Sabbath? That is the rest of redemption today. Have you come to the place where you can completely, fully, Trust Christ that he's done everything for you and you're resting in him and you're not having to jump up every two minutes and run and do something thinking that if you don't do that, you'll lose your salvation. Can you fully trust Christ today? He wants us to enter into that. Now, if we'll enter into that, there's great blessing for us. Not only blessing, it'll open up an avenue of service for us because that is the thing that brought Paul to a life of missionary activity to enter into the rest of redemption. Now, verse 14, "...then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it." Now, we come to chapter 59 here, and here again is God's charge against Israel, and it should lead them the repentance, and then we have the coming of the Redeemer the second time. And this is really a very remarkable chapter. God continues his charge here, and he spells it out now. God refused to hear because of their iniquities, not because he was hard of hearing. Great many people think God's hard of hearing today. I have unanswered prayers. You mean God didn't hear you. He did hear you. But the problem is with us. Now, their sins are referred to 32 times in this chapter. Many words are used to describe their sins like this. Iniquities, sins, defiled with blood, lies, perverseness, vanity, mischief, adder's eggs, spider's web, viper, and works, violence, evil, wasting, destruction, crooked paths, darkness, transgressions, departing, oppression, revolt, conceiving, and uttering falsehood. Twenty-three separate charges against them now God makes here. What a picture this is. And there is a day coming of national repentance for these people. By the way, the church should have something like that today. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And he tells about it in Zechariah 12, chapter, verses 11 through 14. I'll not read it, but it's a tremendous thing. Now you have the condemnation of Israel here in the first eight verses. And God says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. The reason that Israel was not saved in that day was not due to any weakness on the part of the bared arm of Jehovah that we saw in the 53rd chapter. The Lord's hand is not shortened. It wasn't due to any faulty connection with his communication with man. It's not that man have mental hurdles to get over. It's not today that man have problems. But as Paul made it very clear in Second Corinthians, the third chapter, that it's your sin that have separated between you and God. Verse 2, "...but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he'll not hear." Now, that's what Isaiah says. Alexander McLaren put it like this, "...it's not because God is great and I'm small. It's not because he lives forever and my life is but a handbreadth. It's not because of the difference between his omniscience and my ignorance." his strength and my weakness, that I'm parted from him. Your sins have separated between you and your God, and no man 
Built he Babel's ever so high can reach thither. There is one means by which the separation is at an end, and by which all objective hindrances to union and all subjective hindrances are alike swept away. Christ has come, and in him the heavens have bended down to touch and touching to bless this low earth, and man and God are at one once more. What a tremendous statement that is, friends. And now he goes on and spells out these sins. I'm not going through all of these verses. I hope you will. It's rather discouraging, but it's a picture of the human family and probably a picture of you and me today. Now, we have here in this second division, begins here, by the way, at verse 9, and you have the confession of Israel. That's coming when the Redeemer comes to Zion. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity for brightness, but we walk in darkness. Now, you know, he changes pronouns here. And instead of your and their, it is we and our now. This is a confession. They confess they're in darkness. They confess that their religious rituals have all been a pretense. A lot of folk need to do that today. I played golf with a dentist and a broker in Tulsa, Oklahoma, some time ago. And the dentist broker both were telling how they were saved, both of them members of a liberal very rich, liberal church. They were wealthy men. And one fellow one day says, you know, he says, I got tired of being a hypocrite. <laughs> so I just went to the Lord and told him I was a hypocrite. And I wanted reality. And he accepted Christ as his Savior. My, how that's needed today in the churches. Actually, a revival could come in the church. Now we have here this confession. We grope for the wall like the blind. And we roar all like a bunch of bears. My, they were just carrying on. But you see, they were in darkness. And when they made that confession, and are going to make it in the future, and these charges are very specific, and when their sin is confessed separately, it's labeled and repudiated, and confessions of sins today on the part of Christians should be specific and then repudiated. Each sin should be labeled and confessed privately as a sin. And if you read this here, each one of them, and I have no heart to go through their sins, have enough problem with my own. Now, the last, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Now, great many people say, well, you mean the whole nation will be saved? No, not all Israel's Israel. Only those who turn to God. And it's only been a remnant. And it's only a remnant in the world today, and I think actually a remnant in the church today that are actually saved. But the Redeemer is coming someday to Zion. And when he does, they are going to turn at that day to him. Zechariah told about that. He says, I'll pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications. And then now in conclusion, verse 21, as for me... This is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I put in their mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. God has made a covenant that the Redeemer's coming to Zion. There will never be a time when this promise will be entirely forsaken, because this is God's purpose it will be fulfilled in his good time. Now, we come into this 60th chapter of Isaiah, and we see the Son of Righteousness now rising upon Israel, that which Malachi said would come to pass in the last days, that when he came, it would be like the rising of a sun into midnight darkness. And therefore, we see the nation Israel in that day reflecting the glory light here upon the entire earth. Now, the church, you see, in the meantime, is gone to be with Christ and to attempt to articulate the nation Israel with the church and make them synonymous is just an interpretation of Scripture that when you get into an area like this, 
It just bogs down. It's not satisfactory. It does not meet the dimensions of these prophecies. And I would emphasize that because that is one of the things that has caused so much confusion today. And it's the reason that certain schools of prophecy or Bible interpretation, I should say, because they put no emphasis on prophecy. And the reason is, is because of neglect of areas like this here. Now, we started out in this particular section of seeing the Redeemer on the cross in Isaiah 53. Now, there has been a definite progress and development through the remainder of this section that speaks not of the government of God, as the first part did, but of the grace of God. And in the first section, the emphasis is upon law, and here it is upon grace. And we find here that there is, as there was in the first part, that there is love in law, and also that in this section there is law in love. And we're moving in this section to the millennium. Now, last time we were told in verse 20 of chapter 59 that the Redeemer shall come to Zion. All right, now in this chapter, as we move along, he's come. And there is what is known as the prophetic tense in the Hebrew. It's a prophet going beyond the event and looking back at it as if it's history. And he speaks of many of these things as having already taken place here. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Not will come, but is come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. And you can understand that for God, when he says a thing is going to come to pass, he's already on the other side of it. It's just the same as having passed. In other words, prophecy is the mold into which history is poured today. Now, we have here, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, the Redeemer and the Gentiles come to Jerusalem here in the first seven verses. This is a marvelous section here. The light now is come, of which Malachi has spoken. Verse 2, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That's one of the claims he made when he was here. You will recall, he said that I'm the light of the world. Now, here, when he comes to the earth the second time, he is that light. Now, he says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. The coming of the light is necessitated by the night of spiritual darkness that's covered the earth and covers it today. In spite of the preaching of the gospel for 1,900 years, there is a wider circle of darkness today than ever before. You see, light must precede the future blessings. The Son of Righteousness must rise to bring in the millennial day. The preaching of the gospel was never God's intention to bring in the millennium because it takes the light. And who is the light? Well, the Lord Jesus and we need the presence of the Redeemer in Zion, and he's going to bring the Gentiles from afar. Verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now, that's the reason that I believe the greatest revival, and I use that term generally, that is, a great turning to God, is yet in the future. Paul mentioned that, Romans eleven fifteen. For if the casting away of them be, that is Israel, the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? It'll be the resurrection of a nation and a resurrection of the world. For you and I live on a little clod of dirt in space that is just a glorified cemetery, and that's all we're living on today. Now will you notice in verse 4, Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far. Thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. You see, rebellious and scattered, 
They're going to come back to the land of promise, but in obedience to God. The women who are weaker than men are carried, like women in these often carried their children on their hips. Now, will you notice verse 5? Then thou shalt see and flow together, thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because of the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. You see, the tremendous movement of all peoples toward Jerusalem by land, by sea, and by the air will be an occasion of astonishment. And the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. Again, wise men, not from the east, but from all over the world, they'll come with gifts of gold and frankincense for the Redeemer. And do you notice here that they come bringing gold and incense when they come the next time, but they're not bringing any myrrh? Why? Myrrh speaks of the death of Christ and of his first coming. The next time they come, they come bringing gold and incense. Mark. Verse 6 in your Bible, rather remarkable verse, is it not? Now, will you notice, verse 7, "...all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaoth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar. I'll glorify the house of my glory." Flocks are brought to Jerusalem for sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices will be reinstituted in the millennial temple. Now, this may be difficult for some to accept, but the Old Testament, friends, is very definite at this point. You read Ezekiel, the 40th chapter through the 44th, and these sacrifices, I think, are going to point back to the death of Christ, as in the Old Testament, they pointed forward to his death. It'll have the same meaning. Now you have, in verse 8, this second section here, the return of Israel to Jerusalem. And we read here, "...who are these that fly as a cloud, and as the doves to their window?" Well, if there is any prophecy in Scripture that suggests the airplane, this is it. But actually, I think the direct reference is to the ships of the sea. And it does not refer to what's happening today, although I understand that some... Jews that came back to that land from the east, farther east than Israel, that they thought this prophecy was being fulfilled when they were brought by American airplanes. But I don't think that's quite the fulfillment of it at all. It doesn't meet the dimensions of the prophecy. Now, verse 9, "...surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from afar." You see, all seagoing nations will return them back to the land in that day. In other words, the nations that once destroyed Israel will now assist in its recovery. And at that time, Russia will send them back. And instead of demanding payment, they'll send them back with gifts as the Egyptians did. And after all, all that Israel took from the Egyptians was back pay. Remember, they'd been in slavery for 400 years. They had a lot of back pay coming to them. Now, verse 11, "...therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought." Now, you see here that the nations of the world that are saved are going to come in the millennium to Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 12, "...for the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, these nations shall be utterly wasted." Now, that's the thing the Lord Jesus has made clear. He said that he would judge in that day. You visited me in prison. You've helped me and ministered to me when you ministered to one of these, the least of my brethren. And Paul makes it also clear that in that day every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the millennium, man will be forced to bow to Jesus. You see that the force, of course, will be the force of public opinion in that day. In their heart, they won't want to bow, but they're going to go through the motions. And then when Satan is released at the end of the millennium, 
they have a rebellious heart, they'll naturally gravitate to him, and that's the last rebellion. And that introduces the eternal aspect of the kingdom. I think certain radical changes are going to take place then. I think a new earth comes into existence at that time. Not just the patched-up old earth, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God's going to make all things new. He's going to let me start over again. I'm looking forward to that. I didn't do so well when I started off down yonder in Texas 60-some-odd years ago. I'd like to do this over again. I'd like to have a replay, would you not? And so he's going to make all things new. He's not retooling the old nature. He's going to give us a new nature. And in that day, it's going to be a glorious, wonderful day. This is a picture, friends, that ought to excite us today. Now, in verse 15, we come to the last division of this chapter. We have the realization by Jerusalem of all that God promised. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Verse 15. Now, as Isaiah said in the second chapter, the law shall go forth from Jerusalem. It'll become the center of the earth in that day. It's not today. It's not even a secondary, third today. Now we find that a great deal of blessing will come in that day. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentile, suck the breast of kings. Thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior. The riches of Jerusalem, which were taken away by the nations, will be restored with interest. And for brass I'll bring gold, and for iron I'll bring silver. It's interesting that you see so many objects of brass in that land today. And you go in the market, even down in Egypt or in Lebanon, in the markets there. Why, a great many brass objects, but it'll be gold in that day. In other words, precious metals will become commonplace again. And then we're told here some wonderful things that will take place. Verse 19, "...the sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself." I take it here that the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, will be there. And he's the light of the new Jerusalem. And that the universe will no longer need street lights on the corners. That's what all these suns are and stars are out yonder in space. God didn't light it up very well because sin has come into his universe. But he's really going to light it up in that day. And we are told certain things here. For instance, I'll take the last verse, verse 22. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. In other words, human strength will be increased in that day without resorting to vitamins. You won't need vitamins in that day. It's going to be wonderful, friends, to get a body that can measure up to... The thing the Lord Jesus called attention to, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I find today that my flesh doesn't keep up with me. I could go lots faster today and would like to, but my body holds me back. Well, in that day, all that's going to be corrected, and it'll be corrected on the earth as it will be for the heavenly people. Now we come here in chapter 61 and we see one of the most remarkable passages in Scripture, the first and second comings of Christ, with a particular emphasis upon the results of his second coming. Now, we have here in the first three verses one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture, and it helps in the interpretation of the Bible. I want to read now these first two verses, first of all. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. 
Now, here you are given a system of biblical interpretation. When I read this without knowing, I'm not sure who he's talking about. Who is it that says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me? And does this speak of the first coming or the second coming of Christ if it refers to him? Well, now we have God's interpretation. Over in Luke, the fourth chapter, in verse 16, the Lord Jesus went into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he read, and I'm reading now, Luke 4, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and it was right here at the 61st chapter, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." Well, friends, why didn't he keep on? Because he's not even through a sentence. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't he preach that? Because he now says, notice him, he closed the book. In other words, that was deliberate action on his part. He closed the book, he gave it unto the minister, sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, "'This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears.'" Up to that point, it was fulfilled. That was the first coming of Christ, and yet Isaiah didn't include the second coming of Christ. He didn't make any distinction. The Lord Jesus made the distinction. And a little and here separates the first and second coming of Christ. In other words, that little and is 1,900 years long. This gives us a system of biblical interpretation. Now, you remember what Peter said, that the prophets back in the Old Testament, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, that's First Peter 1, 10, and 11. Now, Peter says that the prophets spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ. Now, you have that in Isaiah. We have it in the first section and the second section. But, friends, here we've got it in one verse. Now, how can you make the distinction? Well, the Lord Jesus made it here for us. There's no problem here. But we need to recognize that the prophets... Look down the future. They saw the first coming and the second coming of Christ, and they had them together. And they actually couldn't pull them apart or distinguish between them. And the illustration that I want to use that I trust will make it clear is this. Right here in Southern California, where I live in Pasadena, right back of my home, and I say right back at several miles, up to the mountains, actually to the foothills. It is at least two or three miles to the foothills. But looming up large and high is Mount Wilson, on which you have there the Mount Wilson Observatory. And now a bunch of television stations have their antennas up there where they broadcast. Now back of Mount Wilson, if you get down far enough, you can see another mountain back of it, and that's Mount Waterman. And actually, when you get off and look at them, they look like they're right there together. Now, I've been up in those mountains, and I've been between Mount Wilson and Mount Waterman. And frankly, I would say there's at least 25 miles distance. Well, when you get off down in the valley, here where Southern California is, and look up there, you can't see that valley. All you do is see Mount Wilson, see Mount Waterman. It looks like they're jammed together up there. But there's at least 25 miles. And a friend of mine told me I ought to say 50 miles because he says it's every bit that from the top of one 
to the top of the other. I don't know. But all I know is that when I go down through that valley between them, it's at least 25 miles on my speedometer. All right, there is that difference. But you've got to get up there between them to see the difference. Now, you see, the prophet was way down in the valley looking into the future. He saw the first coming of Christ. He saw the second coming of Christ, as Isaiah did here. And very frankly, apparently a little confused about it. In one breath, how can you make the statement here that he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, going to open the prison, and at the same time, he's going to announce the day of vengeance of my God? How can both be true, you see? Well, you have to stand, actually, where we stand today. Now, we are in the valley between the first coming and the second coming. We look back to the first coming of Christ. He came to fulfill this that the Lord Jesus read there that day. He came to die on the cross as the Redeemer, as we saw in Isaiah 53, for the sins of the world. Now, where we stand is somewhere between that mountain peak and the next one, the second coming of Christ. And those of us today in the church know that he'll take the church out first. The Lord Jesus said that I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to take you out of this scene. Now, he's coming back to this earth to establish his kingdom down here. And when he does, he's coming in judgment. We're going to pick that up in a chapter that's right ahead of us. When you see him treading the winepress of the wrath of God, And my friends, it's not a pretty scene. God never said it would be pretty. But he's going to put down the rebellion that's on this earth today. This little earth is still under his control. And Emerson is wrong when he said things are in the saddle and they ride mankind. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the saddle. And he's in control. He's the king. And he's coming someday. And he's going to put down the rebellion. And that's the day of vengeance when he comes. But immediately after that, we're told here, he's going to comfort all that mourn. Those that are in this earth today that mourn for their sins, that long in their heart for a better day, and want to be in obedience unto him. And then he's coming to establish his kingdom. Now, when you move from that to verse 3, Not only do we have to comfort all that mourn, but appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, now in particular for the nation Israel. And if you're going to mourn in Zion, my friend, you'll have to move out of Los Angeles. You can mourn here too, and there are a lot of things to mourn about. But actually, I think that he knew his geography. Isaiah didn't. When he said Zion, he didn't mean Los Angeles, and he didn't mean Chicago. And he didn't mean Dallas, Texas, and he didn't mean Florida, and he didn't mean South America, and he didn't mean Salt Lake, Utah. He meant Zion was Zion, and that's a geographical spot well known to Isaiah. He'd been there many times. Now, we're told here that to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, you can see that beyond the day of vengeance, which is amplified now when we get to chapter 63, is the peace and the prosperity of the millennium. And Isaiah's making a play up in words here, no question about that, with beauty and ashes. It's just like saying today in English, that he will exchange joy for judgment, or a song for a sigh. In other words, after the sighing and the judgment, there will be joy and a song. Now we are told here, they shall build the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Now, the land of Israel is to receive a facelifting and restore its Edenic beauty at that time. Now, what's happening over there today is wonderful. It's caused Dr. Albright, a great Hebrew scholar, to take the position 
that now he believes in prophecy, that a nation that's been out of the land for 2,500 years is back in the land, apparently made a believer out of him. But friends, let's be very careful that we're not seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. And when you fit it into its time schedule, this will take place at the beginning of the millennium. And we just don't happen to be there right now. Now, verse 5, "...and the strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen, your vine dressers." Now, this is a real picture of prosperity. And will you notice, "...but ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God." Now, do you want to know what Israel will do in the millennium here on the earth? They're going to be a priesthood of believers. Now, this was God's original intention that the entire nation of Israel would be priests. Go back to Exodus 19, 6, and let me read it. "...ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel." Now, because of their sin, this was never attained, but it will be in the millennium. That's God's intention that that should take place. And not only that, he says, "...for your shame ye shall have double, for your confusion they shall rejoice in their portion." In other words, everlasting joy shall be unto them. Now, this is real fullness of joy. What a great day that's going to be. And he says, "...for I, the Lord, love judgment, I hate robbery for burnt offering." and I will direct their work in truth, make an everlasting covenant with them. In other words, their lives then will adorn their religious ritual. You remember, we've been looking at passages where they were going through the ritual, and he condemned them for it, because their heart was far from God. And we're told, "...their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them." that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. In other words, anti-Semitism will end, and pro-Semitism will begin here on the earth because they will be genuine witnesses for God. Now, I don't think they are today. I don't think the church today is fulfilling what it could do. Now, I believe that we're following God's program, and it's working out because he said the day will come when We'd have a form of godliness, but deny the power of it. We see here in this third section now, we saw that there was a real distinction between the first and second comings of Christ made here. The Lord Jesus made it in the first three verses. Then you have that design for living in the millennium. That lets you look into the millennium, the passage we've just gone over, and you see it. Now we see something of the delights of the millennium in these next two verses. Listen to verse 10. "...I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God." My, they're going to have fun, man. I wish today that more Christians had fun in going to church. I wish they enjoyed it more. I wish the study of the Bible was a thrilling and exciting experience for all of us. It ought to be. And God intended it that way. Now he says, "...for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels." Now, the Messiah continues to speak here. And as he does, all that are his can join in this psalm of praise. I'll rejoice in the Lord. The problem today is that a great many Christians just can't rejoice in the Lord. They ought to, but they are out of fellowship with Him, sin in the life, way out of the will of God, and going on in self-will. Now, verse 11, "...for as the earth bringeth forth a bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations." Now, you see, not only... Will there be material benefits and physical improvements? But the true blessings are going to be spiritual in that day. What a picture we have here. 
Now, in chapter 62, we get more details concerning the millennial joys of restored Israel and the earth in that day. Now, you have here the yearning of the Messiah for these anticipated joys. And it is something that also ought to be in the heart of the believer. There is a grave danger of us today as believers looking for the coming of Christ to take us out of the world to use it as an escape mechanism. People get into real difficulty, and they then want the Lord to come. I remember that when I was in seminary, maybe I've told you this, but we had a Canadian, and he was a great fellow, and we liked to kid him. He didn't have much sense of humor, but we enjoyed kidding him. And so he would come out at night after we had dinner, evening meal, and he'd look up. And he said, oh, if the Lord would only come. And that was only the nights we had Hebrew the next day. And it was hard. And he wanted the Lord to come that night. What he really meant was that he didn't want to study Hebrew. And he wanted the Lord to come. Now, when he graduated, he got his degree one day. And the next day, a beautiful girl came down from Canada and they were married. And I never shall forget the night before graduation. He came out and looked up, and he said, Oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come now for a few more days. Yes, that's right. That's the way a lot of us are. We say today we want him to come, but what we really is, we're on a hot seat down here, and we'd like to get off of it. And it ought not to be that. Now, will you notice the picture that's given to us here? We have the ambition of the Messiah for Israel in these first five verses. Then the anticipation of God's people for the millennium. And then the announcement of the Lord for that future day. We'll call attention to these divisions as we move through. Now, the first one, the ambition of the Messiah for Israel. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. You know the reason Jerusalem can't have peace today is because there is somebody sitting yonder at God's right hand that wants to rule in that city in righteousness, and he just can't wait. And I ought not to use that term when you speak of deity, but he's just ambitious. He wants righteousness to be in that city. And you can call it the holy city if you want to, but it's anything today but holy. But it's going to be someday. Now, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts is going to perform this. And man won't make the kingdom. United Nations won't do it, that's for sure now. That's obvious. I don't think we as a nation can do it. I don't think anyone can bring peace into the world but this one here. And so... Only the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And therefore, even today, all of creation and all believers are groaning in their present state as they look toward the future. A great day is coming, friends. And we got a right to groan about it. Christian pilgrim today, aren't you weary of this earthly journey? And do you desire the fellowship of the Father's house? That's a question for us today. Now we are told in verse 2 here, "...the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. A new heart and a new situation, a new earth, a new righteousness." Well, it all demands a new name. Old Vernon McGee's going to be gone. I don't know what new Vernon McGee's going to be like, but he's going to be new. And we're to be in the new Jerusalem, but... What a wonderful picture is given here of the future. And redemption involves not only the church, but the nation Israel and this earth, the physical earth. And we're all groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for that day when it's going to be a grand deliverance. Now we're told here, verse 3, "...thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God." Israel's going to have a new position. And now notice this. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shalt thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, 
for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And I hear people sing, Sweet Beulah Land. At least I used to hear it. I haven't heard it in several years now. Sweet Beulah Land. And they didn't have the foggiest notion where Beulah Land was or what it meant. Well, let's look at this. Israel has been forsaken. This is the picture and name of Israel since the crucifixion of Christ. All you can say when you look at that land today is forsaken, desolate. That's the name. And that's the description of it. But in the coming kingdom, they shall be called Hephzibah. Now, that's a funny name, but it means delightful. It's going to be a delightful spot then. I've made the statement before, I don't like Jerusalem the way it is today. It'll be delightful in that day. And Beulah means married. In other words, the king is present or protected, and his presence means joy. And we're told, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. He delights over Israel as a bridegroom over a bride. Now you have here the anticipation of God's people here. I've set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. This longing is contagious. Every right-thinking person can pray for the peace of Jerusalem, longing for that day. Verse 7, And give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. God says, I'll turn and turn and overturn until he comes whose right it is to rule. Now, down in verse 11, you have the announcement of the Lord for that future day. Listen to him. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. This announcement, it's pertinent, I think, for the present hour, as this verse indicates. We ought to, in presenting the gospel to every Israelite, tell him about God's overall plan of salvation. And the second coming of Christ means the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom down here for these people. The Messiah is their Savior today. Verse 12, And they shall call them the holy people. They're not that today, and it's not the holy land, but it will be. The redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Jerusalem is a forsaken city today. But in that day, it's going to be different, and that's what he's saying here. What a glorious future we have here. We need to know about it. It's in God's Word.